You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Double hockey sticks, fire and brimstone, the abyss, the nether regions, the underworld, the bad place, hell. We've got all sorts of names for it in our world and all sorts of pictures that often go along with those names, right? Pictures that we often connect to a certain story that we think Christianity is telling. For many of us in the Western world, that's how we connect those pictures of hell. In fact, if you go around our world right now and you pull people, they will give you a certain picture of Christianity that also buttons nicely with a certain picture of hell that they have. If you ask your neighbors or your friends, your family members, they'll probably articulate the same sort of thing. And if you ask many Christians, they might say the same thing as well. Here's the the story that many people think Christianity is telling. It starts with God creating the earth. It's where we live, in case you didn't already know. So you and I are right here on this earth, right? Just little, little people on the earth. And it's a tragic and also beautiful place, right? Many of us experience the tragedy and beauty over the course of our lifespans. And many of us contribute to the tragedy and the beauty together, right? Our bad actions contribute to the tragedy. Our good actions contribute to the beauty. And we never get too far away from kind of this middle line, right? We're never terrible, but we're never really great either. And all of our life is trying to wrestle with, well, let's be as good as we can. And then at the end of our lives... We meet God, who ultimately serves as sort of a cosmic teacher handing out report cards. At the end of this, he determines where we've landed on the line, and then he tells us we can go to one eternal hotel or another eternal hotel. One of the hotels is a place called heaven, and many of us, when we picture heaven, think of kind of caricatured images, things like naked babies flying around with harps and clouds and things. Or if we haven't done as well, we end up in this bad place, hell. And similarly, we have caricatures of hell and what hell looks like. We think of a red devil with a pitchfork and horns and a forked tongue and lava everywhere. We think it's sort of this cosmic and and, uh, sadistic punishment uh, for us based on our actions, right? This is often what most people, if you ask them what they think Christians believe, and if you call yourself a Christian in this room, this is what most people think you believe. And there's just one problem with this picture. It's the Bible. This is not the story that the Bible unfolds. This story is full of half-truths and distorted pictures of God, of us, of heaven, and of hell. And I want to be really clear right off the bat. If you've ever been handed this picture of God, a God that hates you, a God that desires to punish you, a God that is overwhelming, if this has been weaponized for you in, in any way in the church, I'm sorry. As somebody who's a part of the church, I'm sorry for the ways that oftentimes we depict God as someone waiting to condemn us looking over our shoulders, waiting to punish us, because that's not the God we see in the Bible. And that's not the God we see revealed in Jesus. The story of Christ is not one of condemnation. It's one of salvation. The story of Christ is not one of hatred. It's one of love. And you actually don't have to take my word for that. You can listen to Jesus himself. In his time on earth, back in John chapter 3, in one of the most quoted passages of Scripture, many of you probably have this memorized, Jesus gives a synopsis of what his purpose on earth was. He says this to a man named Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. 
eternal life being a thing that starts now and continues on into eternity. That's not for God so hated the world that he told us to get it together or else. It's for God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. And in case you missed that, he continues on. He says, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is not a God of condemnation. According to the words of Jesus, there's something different about God. This is not a God who hates you. This is a God who longs for you to have the life that you were made for, who has formed you and knitted you and longs for all of creation to flourish again. And that's one major reason we've started this sermon series here at Midtown. We're calling it Christianity Uncomplicated because we know Christianity has been complicated for us a lot of the time. We know that a lot of things have been heaped on top of this faith, and so we want to help as best we can sift through those things and look at the core. The Apostles' Creed that we're going through statement by statement, this is what billions of Christians for thousands of years have affirmed as the core of their faith. It's kind of a spark notes summary. It's not every detail, but it gives a good synopsis of what we believe as Christians. And today, in our next installment in that series, we're going to look at some central phrases that describe who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. These phrases are that he descended into hell, that he rose again on the third day, and that he ascended, and that he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what we learn from those three phrases and from the scripture text that those three, three phrases are pulled from is that this story of God is much, much more beautiful than the one we often think, much more powerful, much more life-changing than the one we often believe. So if you have a Bible, friends, turn in it with me uh, to the book of 1 Peter. This is right near the ends of your Bibles, if you're flipping there. Look for Hebrews. That's a much bigger book. It's just after Hebrews. So get through Hebrews, find 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3. So look for the big number 3 and then the little number 18. That's where we'll uh, be starting. We're also going to have the words up on the screen behind me, if you'd like to follow along. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's take a look back at this picture that we often have of God and us and heaven and hell and the like, what we think typically Christianity is saying. Who's at the center of this story? What makes up most of this grid here? Us, right? It's about our eternal destination, and it's about all the things that we do in between. God in this picture isn't actually all that involved at all. It's kind of just handing out, well, grades at the end. This is a human-centric picture, but when we read 1 Peter, who's at the center of that story? Jesus. Now, Jesus is always the right answer, but in this case, it really is the right answer. The story of Christianity is the story of God, not the story of us. The story of Christianity is what God has done in the middle of our broken condition. This is a God-centric story, not a humanity-centric story. And that story actually is much less about heaven and hell and much more about heaven and earth. If you open up the opening pages of the Bible, you'll see that God creates heaven and earth, all things together, to be unified. 
God's space and human space overlap, and he creates it and orders it in such a way that everything can flourish. And humanity is made to partner with God in that flourishing. We're made to cultivate what God made here in the world and to create anew. Our design as humans is to live in unity with God, unity with others, and unity with creation. And in the story, something goes wrong in humans. That's what happens. Something goes wrong in us. And we decide, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks, God. We're going to split up heaven and earth. We're going to have a different picture of creation. We're going to segment the creation. And the result for us is that we've segmented ourselves from the source of life. That God formed all things, that he ordered all things, that he made all things to function a certain way. And when we take autonomy and define the world for ourselves, we ultimately corrupt that earth. We seize life on our terms. And you see the seizing of life on our terms all over our world today. Death and sin and brokenness are a result of us having seized the world and defining it on our terms. Good and evil based on we, how we see it. That's the picture of the scriptures. And what we learn is that Jesus has come to resolve this picture. Jesus has come to return us back to this, to a reunified heaven and earth. And now the cross is the way that that happens. That Jesus reunifies heaven and earth. That's why he said when he arrived, don't get better so you can get to heaven. He said the kingdom of heaven is here. So repent. And repent just means turn back to God. That's all that means. Come back to the one who made you, who formed you, and allow him to shape you again. Repent, come back to God, and you will experience the kingdom of heaven again in your midst. Heaven and earth will be reunified. That's the message of Jesus. That's what the Bible's telling. Which is a great story, right? But it still leaves out hell. What's hell got to do with any of this, right? Because the creed mentions hell, and the Bible mentions hell, and Jesus mentions hell, so what the hell, right? Where is hell? Where is hell in this picture? Well, remember, the first pages of the Bible... God creates heaven and earth unified. What doesn't God create? Hell. There's no mention that God creates uh, earth, heaven, and hell as eternal destinations for what we do on earth. Hell only comes into the story after we have segmented heaven and earth. Hell is not a part of God's original good creation. We don't see it in the scriptures. The story is that hell is actually connected to this right here. There will be a nice jagged thing around hell. Hell is an extension of our separation from God. That's how the Bible understands hell. It is always the separation of God that was prompted by our rejecting of that original flourishing, that original picture. It's the result of us having seized autonomy and saying, we know better. We know how to run this thing better. And hell is something we constantly unleash into this creation on one another and on God's good world. It's the destruction of our relationships with one another because we are made to live together. It's hatred and selfishness rather than love and selflessness. It's the usury of other people for our gain. It's dehumanization in all its forms. Hell is anywhere that there's an absence of unity with God, with one another, and with creation. That's what hell is according to the scriptures. And it turns out that the Bible actually has a really a wide uh, variation of metaphors to describe this separation. Many of us just think of like the lava and the devil with the horns, right? But the Bible actually gives us a much broader application of what hell looks like. For instance, it mentions that hell is a lake of fire. But the word that's used there, Gehenna in the Greek, is actually referring to a real place that exists that you can actually go and see right now. 
people in Jerusalem in the ancient world were trying to figure out how do we best describe what separation from God really looks like. So they're looking around and they see this valley called the Valley of Hinnom just outside the city. And that valley is where they went to dump trash and burn it. It was a way of getting rid of refuse. And so they're like, ah, that is what separation from God is like. It is a metaphor to describe what it's like to be separated from the source of life. It smells. It's not a place you want to spend a lot of time. Right? You don't want to be segmented from the source of life. But here's what's interesting. The Bible doesn't just stop with lake of fire. It also describes hell, Jesus describes hell, as utter darkness and blackness, which should strike us, right? Those two things can't literally coexist. You can't have a lake of fire and utter darkness. That's because they're using poetic imagery to describe separation from God. In Malachi, we learn that hell is described as a cleansing soap. When's the last time you heard that? A cleansing soap. Hell is scrubbing you down and cleaning you. And so these metaphors all over the Bible are diverse. And the Bible also doesn't speak about hell as only a future reality. That's an important thing. We often think of hell just in the future. But the Bible clearly articulates to us that hell can creep into our world here and now. That's why the brother of Jesus, James, he wrote a letter to the early church describing how this can happen in our speech. He said that our tongues can be lit on fire by hell when we choose to speak lowly of others when we choose to degrade other people, when we choose to divide our world. And so hell is not just a future reality. It is lighting us up right now all the time when we fracture the unity that we were made for by God. And so all this language that the Bible is using, it's trying to describe the reality that gets created when we live outside of unity with God and with others and with creation. There's a famous theologian who wrote a book called Mere Christianity. His name is C.S. Lewis. And he puts this really, uh, I think, articulately. He's an incredible writer. It's a long quote, but it's worth reading. He said, uh, people often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you, and if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that this is the best way of looking at it. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you're slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, into a creature that's in harmony with God, with other creatures and with itself, or else one that's in a state of war and hatred with God, with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it's joy and peace and knowledge and power. And to be the other kind is madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or the other. Each of us is becoming heavenly or hellish here and now and into eternity. And so hell, according to the scriptures, is any separation from God that we experience now and into eternity. Which means all of us, in some form or another, are actually familiar with what hell looks like. Hell is when our brothers and sisters of color walk down the street in fear for their lives. That's hell. Hell were the trenches in World War I. Hell are the situations that the women who come into this place every week are facing on a regular basis, going home and not knowing what's waiting there for them. Hell is something we know intimately now. It's any separation from perfect harmony and flourishing. And human history is one long story of us being unable to get the hell out of earth. Literally. We have been unable throughout history to get this, to eradicate this evil from our world. 
No matter how creative or ingenious our political or social or moral frameworks are, we can never fix the problem. Just read a history book or look at the world right now that seems to be crumbling all around us. The same problems that have always existed continue to exist today. We can't get ourselves out of hell, which means we need something that can step in to hell, that can descend into hell and lift us out of it and then rule so that hell no longer creeps in any longer. And that, that is what Peter is saying Jesus has done. That's what the creed is saying Jesus has done. Jesus has come to get the hell out of earth and bring the heaven back in. And there's three statements that we learn about Jesus in this passage from Peter and in the creed here. We learn first that in his descent into hell, we have a brother. In his resurrection, we have a savior. And in his ascension, we have a king. We have a brother, a savior, and a king in Jesus. So first, the brotherhood of Jesus. It's really fascinating. The gospel narratives, which are the biographies of Jesus's life that we have in our Bibles, the first four books of your New Testament, they go to great lengths to describe the final days of Jesus. It's actually disproportionate with the rest of Jesus' life. Jesus was doing ministry for more than three years, but over 30% of the gospel narratives talk about his last week on earth and all of the, the ways that he was stepping closer and closer to death. That seems really important. The gospel writers want us to know that death and the death of Jesus was really important. So they detail to us that he was sold out by his best friend. They detail to us that he was dragged to a fake trial in the middle of the night with lying and contradictory witnesses. And he was proven innocent in that trial, but he was condemned guilty. So he was dragged into the street and beaten by the cops. That's what happened to Jesus. And then they were forced him to carry his own torture device to his execution place. Now, he was already beaten up pretty bad. We need to have somebody else help him. So they got another guy to help him carry it there. And when he got there, they nailed him up naked to the cross. That's an important detail we often forget about crucifixion. We often depict Jesus as having worn something, but that's actually not how crucifixion worked. Crucifixion was a Roman torture device designed to assert their control and authority. It was to say, we have rule over everything, and you have no say, and if you think you do, you end up like this guy. So you better not. You'll end up utterly ashamed, beaten, bruised, and dying, and then from the cross, he cries out in agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he died. And then he was placed in a tomb. That all happened. That's all historical reality. And if you're starting a religion, that's a terrible way to start. It's terrible. We see nothing else like this in the history of world religion. Buddha and Muhammad, the founders of their faiths, had wise and sage advice on their dying days. Jesus cries out in agony. Why? Why is this so important? Why do we emphasize this as much as we do as Christians? Do you know how weird it is that we wear crosses and put them on our walls? That's like hanging up electric chairs, you guys. Putting electric chairs around your neck. That's weird. Something about this is really important, and here's what it is. That Jesus descended into all of the separation of God that we've ever experienced. That on the cross and in his descent into hell, Jesus experienced every brokenness that our world could ever fathom. Any brokenness that you've ever experienced. Which means there is nothing right now that you can walk through that Jesus hasn't already walked through. There's nothing that you can experience that Jesus isn't already intimately familiar with. There's no depression you can sink into or anxiety that you can struggle with. There's no pain or temptation that you can face. There's no hardship you can endure. There is no hell that you can go through that Jesus hasn't already been through. 
And so when we look at the cross, we see a brother. We see someone who was willing to descend into the farthest reaches of our separation from God so that we wouldn't have to stay there. There was nothing that Jesus said he wouldn't undergo so that we could have heaven and earth unified again. That's what the cross signifies, and that's what the descent of hell into hell signifies. And there's different uh, theological approaches to what exactly the mechanics of that descent into hell looks like. Throughout church history, people have come up with a few different explanations of this Peter text here. So the descent into hell, or what Peter says in, is into prison in this text, some scholars think that it, it actually happened on the cross, that Jesus in the cross took on all of hell at that point. And that's why he said when he, at, at the end, it is finished. He's descended into all of human depravity so that we wouldn't have to experience it. Some people think that it's the cross. Other theologians think that in between his time, he had some free time in between death and resurrection. And in that free time, he actually went into a place called Sheol, which was a, a, a Jewish conception of hell, which was like a holding area, a waiting room between death and final judgment. And people thought that it was just kind of this underworld separate from God. And many theologians have said that Jesus descended into that place to make sure that anyone who had died before him heard the good news of his proclamation. And he went in and defeated all the spiritual forces and all the evil that was there. So the cross led him straight into Sheol, into hell. Martin Luther, the famous reformer and theologian, talked about this. And his quote is amazing, describing Jesus' descent. He said, he went in and captured the colors like a conquering hero, flinging open the doors and rummaging around among the devils so that one fell out through a window and the other through a hole in the wall. Any evil spiritual force is thrown aside like a doll, like a Barbie, like it means nothing to Jesus, because that's what the cross signifies, that he was willing to go into any evil, any spiritual or physical separation from God so that we wouldn't have to experience it any longer. And so whatever we think about these images of the descent into hell, we're all trying to describe these incredible infinite realities in finite language, right? But whatever we believe, what we can know is this, that there is no distance that Jesus will not travel to bring you back into unity with God. There is no distance that he won't go, and that's because there's no distance that love won't go. That's an important thing about love here, friends. Love never stands calmly and coolly at a distance and separates itself from the suffering of the beloved. Love always goes straight through the suffering of the beloved. It gets its hands dirty. That's why when we say marriage vows to one another, we say things like in sickness and in health, for richer and for poorer, right? If you ever have somebody that's like, I'm in, in health and in riches, run. Get out of that situation because that's not love. And we know it's not love. We know that love goes through all of the depths of pain and suffering alongside the beloved. That's what Jesus does here. That's why a theologian named Helmut Tielica uh, describes it this way. He says, here is someone who wants to be one of us a comrade of the outcasts, a brother of the blind, a companion of the lonely and the suffering and the dying. He appears among them without privileges, sharing their fate, the savior of the world, incognito. We have a brother, friends, in the midst of the hells of our world now and into eternity. We have a brother who's been there and a brother who says, nothing can keep you from this love. But we don't just have a brother. We also have a savior. See, many of us have brothers or sisters or friends that will walk through pain with us. Most of the time, uh, unless you know of anybody, those brothers or sisters can't actually uh, rip us out of the pain and suffering and save us from them, right? We need something to actually get us out of hell as well, not just walk into it with us. 
And that's why this idea of the resurrection, that Jesus rose again on the third day, and the reference that Peter makes here to his resurrection is crucially important in this story. Jesus didn't just suffer. He also freed us from pain and suffering. And it's interesting, you may have noticed as we're reading the text, that Peter mentions Noah, the story of Noah here, which is really curious. Like, how does that connect? Right? Well, here's likely what Peter is up to here. Back in the day, the Jewish scriptures talked about this, this ancient story of Noah, a man who lived in a hellish landscape, a world that was full of rape and pillaging and death and oppression. And God saw that world falling apart. He saw hell. And so the story is that he stepped in and reached out, bringing Noah and his family through a flood, a massive flood that destroyed all of the rape and the pillaging and all of the oppression. That God stepped in and redeemed and restored a people. He was committed to bringing them through the hell of the world. It spoke of God's character. And Peter is saying that that's precisely what Jesus has done here. It is an echo back to what God did in the time of Noah. That God stepped in, that he redeemed and restored people then. And that Jesus on the cross does that once for all for everyone. Jesus has stepped into the mess and brought life on the other side of it. And the resurrection is the reality that the forces of evil and death and brokenness that we know intimately don't any longer have any say. They can't stop Jesus from bringing heaven to earth. They can't stop the redemption and restoration of all things. Nothing anymore can stand between us and life. That's what the resurrection indicates. We had a brother who conquered. And when we choose to believe that, when we choose to receive that reality in our lives, that Jesus is not only a brother, but is a savior for us, and we entrust ourselves to his life, it transforms us and it transforms the world around us. When we allow the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection to shape our lives, it changes us as a community of people that can then go out in the world differently, that encounters death and suffering differently because we know that those things don't have the final word that those things don't define the end game anymore. And if you haven't been baptized here in this room, or you're still kind of figuring out or exploring what it means to follow Jesus, I'd love to meet with you and talk about the significance of baptism. Peter says here that that's what happens for us as Christians when we get baptized. We participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's an amazing picture of us dying to death and hell and living to life once more. And so if you're interested in exploring what that means for you or asking some questions, let me know after service. I'd love to chat with you a bit more. So we have a brother who descends. We have a savior who redeems or saves us, but we also have a king. That's the third part of this story that often gets overlooked. That Jesus not only rose again, but he ascended and now rules as king. That's an important part of the creed and an important part of what Peter says here. The resurrection leads to him eventually ruling in God's space. Ruling in the space that actually has final say over things. He now has authority. Peter mentions powers and authorities and uh, angels here. That's kind of a catch-all way of saying every physical and spiritual power you can think of is now subject to the King Jesus. Which means whatever Jesus says goes. And what Jesus says is that heaven and earth are coming back together. That is the final word that Jesus gives. And that means whatever might come of our world and whatever might come of our lives, Jesus' ascension assures us that suffering and death and hell never get the final word. And that's news we need to hear desperately in our world. We need to know that Jesus gets the final word when it seems like white supremacy keeps getting the final word all around us in supermarkets in Buffalo. When it seems like racism continues to trickle into our world, we need to know that that doesn't have the final word in 
churches in California that get shot up by terribly racist people. We need to know that Jesus has the final word when there's a war that ravages people in the Ukraine that are going through hell right now. We need to know that Jesus has the final word when we have an entire generation here in the U.S. that is crippled by depression and anxiety, loneliness and pain. We need to know that Jesus has the last word when it seems like our planet is falling apart, ecologically and practically. Friends, Jesus' ascension assures us that racism never gets the last word. Putin never gets the last word. Depression and anxiety and pain never get the last word. It's a constant reminder that all things are subject to Jesus. And whatever the world is coming to, it's going to end up being heaven and earth reunified. That's what's happening. And the church, according to Peter, is the place where that reunification starts to happen. That's what the church's role is in between this time. That's actually the whole reason that Peter wrote the, the entire letter. The whole letter is talking to a church who at their time was being persecuted for following Jesus, who was being killed and murdered for living this way of Jesus. Peter is encouraging them to say, friends, when you suffer, when you go through pain, it's not just uh, moot. It's not just meaningless. You're actually going through hell with Jesus, and you get to embody heaven in the midst of it. You get to be a community that radiates life in the midst of a world of death. You get to participate in heaven and earth being reunified now which means the church, this community of believers, exists to confront all evils and all byproducts of hell in the world. That's our job. And that's why we got together yesterday, a few of us, and helped build homes for folks that need homes. Because homelessness is hell, and we are fighting against hell, evil, and brokenness. We fight against it as the church because we know we have a victorious Christ. That's why we meet in this room and help fund the work that these women do every week because some of the situations that these women are in are hell. That's why we're going on a prayer walk and cleaning up trash, because our falling apart ecology is hell. And we want to help heal and restore those things. Not because we're so great, but because we know that's what Jesus has done. And we want to embody that reality in the midst of our world now. The kingdom of heaven has come near in Jesus, and we can live in it now and into eternity. There's a, there's a holiday coming up in June, on June 19th. It's called Juneteenth, easy to remember, June 19th. It's a national holiday, and it started way back in 1865 when the news of the abolishment of slavery traveled to slaves in the state of Texas. They were the final state that brought this news, and it was this amazing celebration. And over the years, it's been spread all over the country, and it's now become a national holiday as of, I think, last year or the year before. And Juneteenth was an amazing day of celebration for people who had been freed from slavery this evil and hellish thing that had been uh, participated in and that they had been oppressed in the middle of. But those early Juneteenth celebrations, the first few years especially, weren't easy because there were still people who wanted to maintain the hell of slavery. There were still people in this country who set up laws that segregated black people from white people. There were still people who ran around, hid their identities, and murdered black people all over. The hell of racism didn't go away just because slavery had been abolished, right? We believe that slavery was abolished at that time. It happened. But the community of people who celebrated that, Juneteenth, also needed to remember that they had to actively work against the forces of hell over and over in their lives that still wanted to capture the world. Juneteenth 
celebrated the defeat of the hell of slavery, and then was a working together every year to remind us what more we still need to fight against. What things are still robbing the world of flourishing? I think we as a church here in the U.S. can learn a lot from our African-American brothers and sisters who celebrate Juneteenth every year. Because we know that the news of, of the death of death, the death of hell, has come. We've been, it's, it's been abolished, just as slavery was. But we also know that there's people who want to continue to bring hell onto earth now. And so it's our job as a church community to, as best as we can, embody life, embody flourishing, embodying the way of Jesus, so that heaven and earth start to get reunified in our midst today. And we don't do that alone. We do that alongside a brother who descended into hell with us. We do that with a savior who can get us out of hell, and we do that with a king who now rules. We don't do it without fear. I'm sorry, we do it without fear. Because we know that death has been defeated once and for all. So let's, as a community, live into that reality day after day together. Let's pray, friends.